I wouldn't be the first to say there must be something in the water in Mississippi. The amount of musical talent that has come out of the state is uncanny. Jim Weatherly was born in Pontotoc, Mississippi, and was inspired from an early age by the success of Elvis Presley, who had grown up right up the road in Tupelo. Weatherly's musical talent was apparent from an early age, but he chose to concentrate on football instead. He played quarterback at Ole Miss and led the Rebels to two conference championships and a perfect 10-0 season in 1962. His football career ended upon graduation, though, and he moved to Los Angeles to pursue a career as a songwriter. Weatherly continued to enjoy football, though, and played on a recreational flag football team with actor Lee Majors. Weatherly called Majors' house one night, but Lee wasn't home, so he ended up talking with Lee's new girlfriend, Farrah Fawcett. He asked her what she was doing, and she told him she was packing. She said she was going to visit her parents in Texas and was going to catch a midnight plane to Houston. That line stuck in his head, and after he hung up, Jim Weatherly pulled out his guitar and started writing. The song only took him about 30 to 45 minutes to write, and then he set it aside. The song he wrote was about a woman who had moved to L.A. and tried to make it, but things hadn't gone as planned, so she was headed home. The storyteller in the song is the man who loves her, who plans to follow her back to Houston. Jim liked the song, but couldn't have possibly known that night how popular Midnight Plane to Houston would become. In 1971, someone suggested that he record an album. The album wasn't supposed to be a success for Weatherly, but simply to put his songs out there so more well-known singers might want to record them. And that's exactly what happened with Midnight Plane to Houston. A producer named Sonny Limbo heard the song and wanted Sissy Houston to record it. Sissy Houston had been a backup singer for many years, singing behind people like Aretha Franklin and Elvis Presley. She also sang backup on Van Morrison's hit, Brown Eyed Girl. We may know Sissy Houston better as the mother of singer Whitney Houston, but she was also the aunt of Dionne Warwick, and her son Gary played in the NBA for the Denver Nuggets. She was a remarkably talented singer and had recently embarked on a solo career. She was set to record Midnight Plane to Houston, but wanted to make some changes first. She said no one she knew took planes at all. They rode the train instead. Second, since her last name was Houston, they were afraid it would seem jumbled. So she suggested her family's home state of Georgia instead. And so it was that Midnight Plane to Houston became Midnight Train to Georgia. Sissy Houston's version of the song is great, but her label didn't do much to promote it. Weatherly's manager, on the other hand, sent her recording to Atlanta native Gladys Knight, who was just finishing up her run with Motown. Knight loved the song and wanted to record her own version. She wanted to slow it down and give it more of an Al Green feel, she said. They added horns and strings and beautiful instrumentation throughout. I've heard that when Gladys Knight recorded the lyrics, she did it in just one take. She said at the time she recorded the song in 1973, her marriage was in trouble. 
Her husband wasn't happy she was on the road all the time. The marriage would end in divorce that year, so the emotion in Knight's voice in her version is intensely real, and you can feel it. The line which hits home the hardest is the same line which hit in Weatherly's and Houston's versions as well, and is one of my favorite lines in any song ever written. I'd rather live in his world than live without him in mine. Gladys Knight and the Pips version debuted on the charts at number 71, and just eight weeks later, it became the group's first number one Billboard hit. In 1974, it took home the Grammy Award for Best R&B Vocal Performance, Duo or Group. Midnight Train to Georgia became Knight's signature song and has been named to Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. To me, the song is at once sad and hopeful, a song about a dream that has played out, but a love that endures. He kept dreaming that someday he'd be a star. But he sure found out the hard way that dreams don't always come true. So he pawned all his hopes and he even sold his old car. Bought a one-way ticket to the life he once knew. Oh yes he did. He said he would be leaving on that midnight train to Georgia. I've traveled the country over. Stopped in each and Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is a pleasure to be with you today. As hard as it is for me to believe, this is episode 15 of the podcast. So for those of you who have been following along, I want to say a big thank you. Today, I'm coming to you once again from the great state of Georgia. Since last we met, I spent some time in Augusta, made my way south and east to Savannah, one of my favorite cities in the country, and then headed down the coast. I spent a week exploring the fascinating sea islands of Georgia, ducked inland to do some kayaking on the Okefenokee Swamp, and finally headed out for a visit to incredible Cumberland Island National Park. The last time I was on Cumberland Island was on my eighth grade class trip. I'm not going to share with you how many years ago that was, but it's been a while. To read more about my travels or to see photos of the beautiful places I've been, please be sure you visit my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles, the number two, gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook at miles to go before I sleep online on Twitter at miles to go tweet and on Instagram at miles to go before I sleep all using the number two for me and you. I've got a real treat for you today in our musical guest. The music for today's show comes to us from the great Savannah-based band Liquid Ginger. All the songs you hear today come from their self-titled debut album available on iTunes and Spotify. To learn more about Liquid Ginger to see where they're playing next, or just to get in touch with them. You can find them on Facebook at Liquid Ginger Music, or for a blast from the past, you can even find them on MySpace. Eastern Georgia is where the modern state got its start. On February 12, 
1733, James Oglethorpe founded the British colony of Georgia, named after King George II. Oglethorpe had convinced the king to try a social experiment in which he would bring the, quote, worthy poor from the debtor's prisons of England to the New World and create this new colony based on social equity and civic virtue. The colony was bordered by South Carolina to the north, Spanish Florida to the south, and French Louisiana to the west. Because of their French and Spanish neighbors, Catholics were banned from the new colony, as were lawyers and, perhaps most notably, African slaves. Georgia was not present at the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia, but would send representatives to the second such meeting and become the last of the original 13 colonies. The state joined the Confederacy during the Civil War and would be the last state readmitted to the Union almost five years after the war ended. Today, Georgia is home to UPS, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, Delta Airlines, and the busiest airport in the world. I had a great time during my stay, met some wonderful people, and learned a lot, including these stories I'm going to share with you today. So find yourself a comfortable chair and maybe mix up a batch of sweet tea. Sit back, relax, and let me take you to the plantations, islands, and music venues of East Georgia. This is a story about slavery. More specifically, it is a story about 436 slaves, or rather, 436 human beings who had been born into this horrific institution. Each had a name, although it is unlikely their parents chose it for them. But each did have parents. Most had siblings, and some had children of their own. They each had hearts and minds and souls and feelings. Although they were often not treated like people, they were people. None of the people in this story, to my knowledge, had been born in Africa. They were native-born Americans, although none were considered citizens at the time. They were people, just like you and me, which is what makes this story so heartbreaking and yet so important. Before I begin to tell it, though, you must know that in my opinion, slavery has always been wrong. In every form, in every period of history, from biblical times to modern ones, owning another human being is simply wrong. In this country, how can we think otherwise? You can walk down the street in any city in America, or go into any shopping mall, and you will see t-shirts and hats screaming liberty or freedom or any of the other tenets we hold dear in bold letters. And yet for some reason, we are supposed to give a pass to people because it's the way it was. It wasn't always that way in Georgia though. When James Oglethorpe landed in the New World, 
he specifically banned slavery. But as happened elsewhere, profit superseded principle, and cotton and rice depended on slave labor to turn a profit. And it was, in fact, these two crops which led to the fortune of Major Pierce Butler. Major Butler was a signer of the United States Constitution. He was also the author of the Fugitive Slave Clause. He owned two large plantations on the Georgia coast, one rice and one cotton, and almost a thousand slaves. When he died, he left his property and his fortune to his two grandsons, Pierce Meese Butler and his brother John. It is the younger Pierce Butler whom this story focuses on. As has so often been the case throughout history, having not earned the money in his accounts, Pierce spent his life squandering it. He loved taking chances and playing cards, and through risky speculation and gambling losses, found himself deeply in debt. In 1856, a group of trustees was appointed to manage his estate. They started by selling his grand Philadelphia mansion for $30,000, a huge sum back then, but not nearly enough to cover his obligations. In 1859, they decided their only option, short of selling his plantations, was to sell half of his, quote, movable property, or his slaves. They enlisted the help of Joseph Bryan, one of Savannah's most well-established slave traders, and set a date for the auction of March 2nd and 3rd, 1859. The auction was originally to take place in Johnson Square downtown, but there was not enough space for the 440 slaves to be kept there. So a decision was made to hold the auction at the Ten Brock Racetrack, two miles from downtown Savannah. Advertisements were placed and prospective buyers came from as far away as Virginia and Louisiana to participate. The slaves were moved by steamship and train to the racetrack, where they were locked in the horse stalls. The prospective buyers were allowed to inspect these enslaved people like horses, making them walk up and down to detect injury and forcing their mouths open to inspect their teeth. It must be said that the women bore the worst of it, from lurid comments to groping of their bodies and discussions of their breedability. Giving what small credit is due to Pierce Butler, he explicitly forbade the breaking up of families. Husbands and wives and their children were to be sold together, with no exceptions. Adult children would be separated from their parents, though, as would siblings and extended families. It cannot be overlooked, as in the retelling of this story it often is, that the breaking up of their community was inevitable. To my knowledge, all of these people had been born on the plantations and lived together forming a community gaining from it whatever comfort they could in their enslaved state. On March 2nd, the day the sale began, the skies opened up and heavy rain began to fall on Savannah. The start time of the auction was pushed back two hours, but eventually the inevitable process began, rain or no rain. Over the next two days of torrential downpours, 436 men, women, and children were sold off to the highest bidder, netting Butler $303,850. In what I'm sure he considered an act of great kindness, 
Pierce approached each of his former slaves as they were sold, shook their hands, and gave them a shiny new $1 coin. To celebrate his windfall, Butler then opened champagne and took an extended trip to Europe before returning home to Philadelphia, where he sat out the Civil War. We know a great deal about this auction because a journalist named Mortimer Thompson attended posing as a buyer. Under the pen name Q.K. Philander Doesticks, he wrote a lengthy article for the New York Tribune about it, titled, What Became of the Slaves on a Georgia Plantation. He went into great detail on the entire affair. In response to the story of the auction and the breaking up of extended families, Philadelphia socialite Sidney George Fisher stated, quote, It is done every day in the South. It is one among the many frightful consequences of slavery and contradicts our civilization, our Christianity, our republicanism. Can such a system endure? Is it consistent with humanity, with moral progress? End quote. The only bright side of this story is that these people only had to endure six more years of slavery before they were freed by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which, incidentally, nullified Major Butler's Fugitive Slave Clause. But just those six years is six years more than anyone should have ever spent in the ownership of another. This story is not a commentary on the Civil War, the causes and effects of which are far more complex. But if anything good came from that war, the freeing of enslaved people must top that list in a country that so often preaches freedom and liberty. The auction which took place at Ten Brock Racetrack, two miles west of Savannah, on March 2nd and 3rd, 1859, was the largest single sale of enslaved people in United States history. 436 people were held in pens and sold like livestock. The rain never stopped during those two days, and it has often been said that it was as if the heavens were crying at the inhumanity being committed there. Between the tears from the heavens and the tears from the people whose community was being literally torn apart, we remember this tragic episode as the weeping time. Legendary journalist Irma Bombeck once said, quote, There is a thin line that separates laughter and pain, comedy and tragedy, humor and hurt. Such was the case with one of America's most well-known and beloved comedians, whose childhood was anything but funny. Norval Hardy was born the youngest of five children on January 18, 1892, in Harlem, Georgia. His was a family with deep southern roots. Norval's grandfather had owned a cotton plantation, and his father was a Confederate veteran who had been wounded at the Battle of Antietam at Sharpsburg. His father passed away when he was just an infant. 
Several years later, Norval's older brother Sam fell into the Oconee River. Norval pulled him out, but was unable to revive him, and his brother died right there in his arms. Perhaps in part because of these tragedies, Norval took great comfort in food and was always a big kid and would grow into a big adult. This caused him to be bullied and taunted in school. Young Norval found he enjoyed the laughter of his peers, found it comforting in fact, but he preferred them to be laughing with him instead of at him. His preference for clowning over studying became a problem and at 13, his mother sent him to a military academy. Norval had little interest in academic subjects, but loved to sing and act, so his mother tried a different route, sending him to Atlanta to study music. In addition to his studies, he found work performing at the Alcazar Theater for $3.50 a week. In 1910, a new movie theater opened in Milledgeville, near where Norval had grown up. He took a job there and would work as the janitor, projectionist, ticket taker, and finally, manager of the theater. He became obsessed with this new medium and believed he could do better than any of the actors he watched on the silver screen every day. In 1913, Norville moved to Jacksonville and found work singing in a vaudeville act at night. This allowed him to work at the Lubin Manufacturing Company during the day, one of Florida's early movie studios. The following year, he appeared in his first movie, Outwitting Dad. Over the course of the next year, Norville made 50 short films, usually billed under his nickname, Babe Hardy. Despite his love of comedy, he was often cast as the villain. In 1917, he moved to Los Angeles and freelanced for several major studios. He made at least 40 films between 1918 and 1923. In one of these films, The Lucky Dog, filmed in 1921, he worked with a young and talented British actor named Arthur Stanley Jefferson. They would cross paths several times over the next few years. In 1926, they both appeared in the film 45 Minutes from Hollywood, but they didn't share any scenes together. The following year, 1927, Norville and Arthur starred in three films together, Slipping Wives, Duck Soup, and With Love and Hisses. Their on-screen chemistry was unmistakable, and audiences reacted well to the pairing. This chemistry led to their first official film together later that year, titled Putting Pants on Philip. The duo would forever after be linked, starring together in 107 films over the next 28 years. Their work in comedy was groundbreaking, and they have inspired countless comedians since. We still watch them today, and their antics still make us laugh. Of course, we don't know them as Norval and Arthur, Arthur chose to go by his middle name, Stanley, and in 1910, Norville had changed his name to honor his father, who had died when he was just a baby, Oliver. You certainly know who Stanley and Oliver are, although you may know them better as Laurel and Hardy.
Richard Wayne Penniman always walked to his own beat. Anyone who knew him would agree with that. They might not know, however, that he was born with one leg considerably shorter than the other. So, at least early on, it was out of necessity instead of vanity. Born in the Pleasant Hill neighborhood of Macon, Georgia on December 5, 1932, he was the third of 12 children born to Charles and Leva Penham. Charles, his father, was a busy man. He probably didn't get much sleep between the time his nightclub, the Tip-In Inn, closed on Saturday night and the church he served as a deacon for opened on Sunday morning. The rest of the week he was busy making moonshine. Because his daddy was a deacon, Richard began singing in church when he was just a kid. He later remembered that people in Pleasant Hill went right on singing that church music all week. Life wasn't easy for black folks in Georgia in the 1930s, and the music gave them hope. In his early teens, Richard went to Hudson High, where he was more interested in music than his studies. He played the alto sax and continued to sing. All of his friends were girls, and his effeminate demeanor brought ridicule from his classmates. Even then, he knew he was queer, but he didn't exactly have any role models to turn to for advice in Macon, Georgia in the 1940s. In high school, he got a job selling concessions at the Macon City Auditorium, where he got to see all the big stars perform. In 1947, Sister Rosetta Tharp, whose influence on the music world cannot be underestimated, came to Macon. Before the show, she heard Richard, then 14, singing some of her songs and invited him to open for her. He did, and did so well, she decided to pay him for the performance. Richard Penniman decided there and then to become a performer. When he was 15, his father threw him out of the house because of his sexuality. He told Richard he had wanted seven boys, and Richard had spoiled that because he was gay. He dropped out of school and went to perform in Dr. Nobilo's traveling show, where he sang in exotic capes and turbans. Later, he joined Dr. Hudson's medicine show, where he performed in drag as Princess Lavon. By 1950, when he was 17, Penniman was living in Atlanta and performing in minstrel shows, sometimes in drag, sometimes as himself. He began listening to R&B music and venturing out to Atlanta's nightclubs. At one such club, 81 Theater, he met and befriended a man who would become one of his biggest influences, the great jump bluesman, Billy Wright. Wright was flashy and wore fancy clothes, makeup, and a tremendous pompadour hairdo. Penniman liked this look and adopted it as his own. Wright introduced Penniman to local DJ Zena Sears, who recorded him and gave him some local airplay. This led Penniman to a contract with RCA, and they recorded eight songs together. One of these songs, Every Hour, did well in Georgia, but failed to break onto the national airwaves. When RCA failed to make him a star, Richard Penniman left the label and Georgia. He moved to Houston, where he formed the band Tempo Toppers. A 
1953, he signed with Peacock Records and recorded another eight songs, but again, none of them became hits. Frustrated and broke, Penniman moved back to Macon in 1954, where he took a job washing dishes at the Greyhound station. Music was his calling, though, and he couldn't stay away for long. Soon he founded another band called The Upsetters, and the following year he signed with Specialty Records. They thought they had found their answer to Ray Charles, but Penniman likened himself more to Fats Domino. Running with this, they sent him to New Orleans to record at the legendary Cosmo Matassa's J&M Recording Studio. Penniman recorded with the Fat Man's session musicians, with producer Robert Blackwell sitting in. The session was not producing a hit, and both Penniman and Blackwell knew it. During a break, and perhaps to relieve a little tension, Penniman started pounding out a song on the piano that he had done in his stage performances for years. When Blackwell heard it, he knew it would be a hit. Penniman looked at him like he was crazy. The song was explicitly about gay sex, which was one thing at a nightclub in a live performance, but a whole different thing laid down on an album in 1955 America. But Blackwell insisted, so they sat down and changed the lyrics, and on September 14, 1955, they recorded it. The song was a huge hit and a monumental influence on the emerging genre of rock and roll. It catapulted Penniman into the big time, and it happened fast. So fast, in fact, that his regular gigs in Georgia had to find a replacement. As we heard in episode seven of this podcast, that replacement would go on to be a legend in his own right. Penniman's Georgia replacement was none other than James Brown. Over the next four years, Penniman had nine top 40 pop singles and 17 top 40 R&B singles. His live performances were considered among the best ever. In 1962, Penniman toured Europe where his opening act was a little known local band called The Beatles. In 1963, he toured with the Everly Brothers, Bo Diddley, and the Rolling Stones. Among the great musicians who played in his band were both fellow Georgian Otis Redding and a young guitarist named Jimi Hendrix. His songs were covered by such legends as Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and the Everly Brothers. Penniman's music and performing style influenced bands from the Beatles and the Stones to Deep Purple and Motorhead, and musicians from Tina Turner and Bob Dylan to Michael Jackson and Prince. He also served as a role model for gay musicians like David Bowie, Elton John, and Freddie Mercury. In 1984, Penniman was inducted into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame, and in 1986, he was in the charter class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's also been inducted into the Blues, R&B, and Songwriters Halls of Fame, and in 1993, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Have you guessed who I'm talking about yet? If you haven't, you'll only need the very first lyric of the song that launched Penniman to superstardom because it is one of the greatest lyrics in American pop music history. 
Ba-wop-ba-ba-loo-ba-ba-lop-bam-bam. The original lyrics went from there. Tutti fruity, good booty. Tutti fruity, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it, make it easy. And of course, we know Richard Wayne Penniman as the one and only Little Richard. We can take a walk in the moonlight, get love on the beach at midnight. I don't care as long as I'm with you. We can hold hands by the river, kiss your lips till you start to quiver. James Brown was born February 17, 1936, on St. Simon's Island, off of the Georgia coast. No, not that James Brown. That was episode 7 of this podcast. This James Brown was only slightly less famous than that James Brown, though. Jim's father, Swinton, had been a professional boxer, but walked out on Jim and his mother when Jim was only two weeks old. Jim's mother, Teresa, soon departed for Long Island, where she found work as a housekeeper. She left Jim in the capable hands of his grandmother on St. Simon's Island. It took eight years for her to establish herself and be able to send for her son. Jim got into a fight on his first day of school on Long Island, and his mother worried she had made a mistake in bringing him there. Thankfully, he soon found sports as an outlet to channel his energy. When he was a little older, Jim Brown attended Manhasset Secondary School, where he earned 13 varsity letters in football, baseball, basketball, track, and lacrosse. In football, he played running back and averaged 14.9 yards per carry. He was also on the honor roll. Jim was recruited by 45 universities and chose to stay in New York and go to Syracuse. As a freshman, the football team gave him a pass. As a sophomore, he rode the bench until an injury brought him into the game. He knew he had to prove himself, and he did. Jim went on to earn 10 varsity letters at Syracuse, three each in football and lacrosse, two in basketball, and two in track. In 1956, he made first-team All-American in both football and lacrosse and came in fifth in the Heisman Trophy vote. He also finished fifth in the nation in the decathlon, qualifying for the Olympics. He passed and instead concentrated his energy on football. After graduating in 1957, Jim was drafted in the first round by the Cleveland Browns. By the end of his fifth game, Jim had already surpassed the Browns' record for most touchdowns in a season. He went on to win his first of eight season rushing records that year and was named the NFL's Rookie of the Year. Jim won the rushing record again in 1958 and also took a role in the film Rio Conchos, which started the acting career which would eventually propel him out of football. Jim went on to play nine seasons in the NFL, never missing a game. During that time, he went to the Pro Bowl all nine years. 
In addition to his Rookie of the Year honor, he was named NFL MVP three times. He set records for single season and career rushing yards, rushing touchdowns, total touchdowns, and all-purpose yards. He was the first player with 100 rushing touchdowns and the first to rush for more than 10,000 yards. His most impressive statistics, though, were his averages of 5.2 yards per rush and 104.1 yards per game. He is, in fact, the only player in NFL history to average over 100 rushing yards per game. In 1971, he was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. In 1966, when Jim was just 30 years old, it all came quickly to an end. He was acting in the film The Dirty Dozen, and filming ran into training camp. Because he could not do both, Jim Brown quit football forever. He was later quoted in Sports Illustrated as saying, I quit with regret, but no sorrow. I've been able to do all the things I wanted to do, and now I want to devote my time to other things. And I wanted more mental stimulation than I would have had playing football, end quote. Jim Brown went on to quite an acting career, appearing in more than 40 films. In the movie, 100 Rifles, he starred in a love scene with Raquel Welsh, one of the first interracial love scenes in Hollywood history. In 1986, Brown founded Vital Issues, which in 1989 was renamed Amer I Can. Through this organization, he set out to teach life management skills and personal growth to inner-city gang members and prison inmates. He is also the part owner of the New York Lizards, a professional lacrosse team. One can only imagine, though, the records he would have left had he played for a few more years in the NFL. Despite only playing nine seasons, though, in 2002, the Sporting News named Jim Brown the greatest pro football player of all time. Not bad for a kid raised by his grandmother in the Sea Islands of Georgia. That's it for the show this week. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you did, do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review the podcast. To find out more about me and my slow journey around the country, pop over to my website, www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook at Miles to Go Before I Sleep Online, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. How great was the music this week? 
Many thanks to our wonderful musical guest, Savannah-based Liquid Ginger. To find out more about Liquid Ginger, head over to their Facebook page, at Liquid Ginger Music. You can download and listen to all the songs you heard today and more on iTunes and Spotify. Thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod over at IncompTechMusic.com for music and sound effects, and also to the great folks at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. As I finish up this podcast, I've already started making my way down the Florida coast. So next time, I'll be coming to you from the Sunshine State, a great place to be this winter. Until then, though, I hope you are getting out and going on some adventures of your own. I know I will be. Thanks for all of your support over these first 15 episodes. I'm only just getting warmed up. I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights pointed towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.